0: It is great to be back in the pulpit. I did, though, however, have an opportunity to stand in some pretty nice pulpits uh, of Martin Luther's, uh, both in Eisenach and as well as in Wittenberg, to be able to see some. Uh, Most small towns in Germany have a Catholic church, and they have a Lutheran church. And the cathedral of the Catholic church is... Very, very ornate. The Lutheran Church, not so ornate, but uh, very, very nice. And the noticeable difference is the pulpit is elevated. So much like a podium or a stand, uh, there's a soundboard above the pulpit. And so you could walk up into the pulpit and you can preach down to the people for the voice to be able to carry. But more importantly, it was because the Word of God is rightfully seen as the authority and Martin Luther and the Reformation, which we're going to see Germany, and there's great preparation going on right now. In 2017, next year, we'll celebrate 500 years uh, of the re- since the Reformation. Um, and so the the Word of God, if it were simply read on a Sunday morning, and for whatever reason, uh, the minister or the lack thereof, was not able to give a sermon or a homily, then the people still would have been served in worship. The reading, as John Hildreth did earlier, the reading of Psalm 121 thereby, is as important, really more important, than any remarks that I will make, that I've prepared. Now God the Holy Spirit, I pray, will use my my study, and connect it with other portions of God's Word to show its fullness and its truth. But God's Word, it, it, during the Reformation, came front and center as the authority and the guide. People depended upon that. Uh, we were able at one point to go to the Wartburg Castle, where he was abducted by the emperor, really protected, and he took that year to translate from Latin which no one spoke except the clergy, or read except the clergy, and translate into the German Bible. And it fueled the Reformation because then people had a map, a guide to understanding God and how to live as his sons and daughters through the power of the gospel in their very hands. And so the Reformation was launched um, this morning we're continuing in the, our look at the top 15 psalms this summer. And, <coughs> excuse me <clears throat> Psalm 121 next to Psalm 23, which is the most famous and the most widely known and cited, Psalm 121 is number two in the lineup. Uh, Barry and John and Nathan have served us well as our shepherd elders in preaching in my absence. And they had some pretty tough psalms, imprecatory psalms, uh, psalms on the law. They had, some, they had some real challenging psalms. This morning, this is a psalm that shows us three things. It shows us the, the, that the pilgrim in his journey can find and has in God a helper. But in our journey called life from here to our heavenly home, we also have a keeper. God puts himself forward in this psalm over and over again. We see the word keep. He will keep my feet from stumbling. He will keep me by day and by night. And he will keep me from evil. And he will... Keep my life and he will keep me when I go in and I come out. God is a keeper. And then secondly, as pilgrims in this life, as we make our way toward home, we find that God is not only our helper and our keeper, but it's rather subtle in here. He's our shepherd. He is leading us. He is providing for us and all the way like a shepherd, vigilantly watching over his flock by night, and leading them to to water and food by day. He is preserving our life until we make it home. And we will make it home. Why? Because of our own diligence, because of our own abilities, because of our own ability to stay pure or strong in the Lord? Not at all. It's because we have the Lord who is our helper, our keeper, and our shepherd. Well, that's where we're going. Let's look at it in a little bit more detail This morning in Psalm 121, I've said that the main point is that like, you know, in the Psalms, we've said all along that the Psalms would have been a part of the everyday worship of ancient Israel. They would have known the Psalms, many of them, they would have known them as either a prayer or a song or like this morning, a song that is a prayer. They would have known them in the family by heart. And so we can join ancient Israel as Christians and we can find not only great solace and comfort and strength, but we can learn to sing them once again and to sing and apply them in our life. This is the second, beginning with Psalm 120, this is the second of 15 Psalms that are known as the Songs of Ascent. And Annually, a Christian or an Israelite would make a pilgrimage, a pilgrim on a journey, on a path to Jerusalem for worship. And Jerusalem was where the temple was located. And it's different for us because we realize as New Testament Christians, because of Jesus Christ, that we have God with us Our very body is a dwelling place of God, a temple. They had the temple that was the dwelling place of God and they often said that that was a place where earth met heaven. It was God's footstool so that I could come as an earthling in my pilgrimage and after my long journey, after the heat and the night, after the blisters, after the, the, the threat of bandits, after the hunger, after the thirst, after diff- difficult relations with other pilgrims, maybe even getting lost, I had ever before me to arrive at that place. My goal was to arrive at that place to be with God, to be in His presence. And the interesting thing that this pilgrim cites is that He doesn't have to wait to the journey's end for the very presence of God. But our God, unlike every other God, our God is one who doesn't say, come to me and then we will be together, but He comes to us. The Gospel is He initiates and He comes to us and He's with us, leading us, providing us, bringing us back even when we go astray always back to be with Him forever. So we don't simply have to wait until our journey's in to be with God. It's the very presence of God all along the journey that we experience, earth meeting heaven, even until we come home. A.W. Tozer uh, says this. He says, What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In other words, how you think God is or what you think about God's character influences what you do. Uh, James uh, Melcher, James Metzger, excuse me, and uh, Charlotte, uh Gordon Conwell professor writes that we have four gods in America. Four gods. The first God is Mad Dad. And Mad Dad is judgmental and engaged. Secondly, we have Kind Grandfather God. Kind Grandfather is non-judgmental. He's easy and he's engaged. Thirdly, we have Angry Boss God. He's judgmental, but he's not engaged. He doesn't know us intimately or personally. And then we have distant relative God he's both non-judgmental but he's also non-engaged James Metzger says after this you have no God the atheist non-existent God if you are a Christian who regularly attends church or you're found in a community of Christians you're more apt to find yourself in that position that believes in mad dad. God is judgmental, but he is engaged. The Ten Commandments, the law of God, I can never quite meet his expectations. But as you move farther away, as you move more from judgmental to non-judgmental, it really is uh, equal to your relationship to Christianity and the church. So that the more related you are to the church, the more you're likely to see God as authoritative the least likely you're involved in church and Christianity you're more likely to see him benevolent but really uncaring indifferent and not engaged why do I mention this you look at the psalm and we see this psalmist the the mountains of Jerusalem are probably coming into sight and he looks and he sees the hills and he could look at those hills and his, he can see both difficulty, but he might also see the places in those hills where idols are set up. And he could go to certain idols and please them. For instance, he could go to the idol for who controls the sun. And he could appease that idol with a sacrifice such that his days would not be so sunburnt or maybe he could go to the idol that was to the moon and they would often travel at night but it could be quite dangerous and so he would he would make a he would appease the the moon god but this psalmist does not allow his eyes to simply stay on one of America's four gods he says none of these are the real god and he broadcast to us in this song. He's saying, I know the real God. I'm looking beyond what this world sees. I'm looking even over the hills and I see the maker of the hills. Verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So he's looking above even his difficulties, he's looking above what others offer as help. He's looking even beyond his own ability to manage and provide for himself, known as self-reliance. And he's saying, I'm not going to rely upon myself or this world's false gods or my own devices or the devices of others, but I'm going to go and I'm going to raise my eyes from the difficult path, the journey that I'm on, And I'm going to see the God that is above it all. And he said, this God is my helper. We are pilgrims. And we're not making an annual track to two rivers for worship. We come every Sunday. But we are right now in, we are on a journey. And you would do well to recognize two things about everybody that you meet. Everybody that you meet. Is in a fight. We don't know what the we may not know what their struggle is, but everybody is in a fight of some type. There is some struggle or conflict in our life, an issue. Number two, we're all on a forward journey toward our end. This last week, uh, I read BC Comics, and BC comes to a pharmacist, and he says, "Hey, what have you got for stress?" And he said, well, the world's going to end and you're going to die penniless, lonely, and without fame. He says, no, no, no. He says, I mean, what do you have to alleviate stress? All of us are in a fight and all of us are in a journey. We are all pilgrims. We all need help. We need help. Where are we finding, the psalmist says, where is your source of help? Is it lying out there in the hills? Or is it the Creator, God, very personal, who tells us, I am a helper to you? I remember uh, becoming a Christian at the Citadel, and the man who led me to the Lord was a son of a Pentecostal holiness pastor. And I had never been to church. And so he invited me after I became a Christian. He said, now you need to get plugged into the community of believers. So come with me to church. So we began to attend an Assembly of God church that had a great emphasis on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, particularly speaking in tongues and signs and various wonders. I I had never seen anything like that in my life. And I had people coming up to me, a newcomer, and asking me, did I have the gift of the Holy Spirit? And I said, I think God... Do, but I'm not sure. And they would ask me, Have you spoken in tongues or have you seen these visions and things like that? I said, No, no, no. And so they proceeded to try to teach me how to speak in tongues. And now I wanted, I know at that time, if God promised us something, then I wanted it. And so my friend said that we are not made to do this life alone, that Jesus is in heaven, but He sent the Holy Spirit to guide us and to be with us is a very real power. In the journey. Catherine Marshall had written a book called The Helper. And it was very, very helpful to me. I never did speak in tongues. And I never did have some of the company signs such that others did. But I came to have a fresh appreciation. In, I mean, just within weeks of having become a Christian. To understand that being a Christian did not mean simply the forgiveness of your sin and now you work the rest of the journey and life out on your own in self-reliance. That wasn't going to work. We needed a very real helper. Jesus, knowing that he would leave his disciples, his fellow pilgrims, those, those twelve disciples told them in John 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him or knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Christian, do you know Him Because he dwells in you and will be in you. I can't go much further, but what we're talking about is an understanding, a doctrine, truths, promises, comfort, power of knowing a very personal helper who is the third member of the Trinity. God inside of us. He is our helper. He doesn't send an angel. He doesn't simply send fellow Christians to assist us, as wonderful as they are. He himself, Jesus says, I am in heaven physically, but spiritually I send my very Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to dwell with you, in you, to be with you forever. If you're a Christian and you're not experiencing this, you might want to look at those things that grieve the Holy Spirit, that cause the power and the voice of the Holy Spirit to go dormant or even mute for a season. Usually it's unrepented sin, but it's also self-reliance and pride. You see, the pilgrim was humbled by the sun and the stones before his feet. He could fall off the path to his death or injury. He was dependent upon help along the way. And this pilgrim says, God is my helper. So much so that he won't even let my foot twist to turn an ankle. Secondly, we find in verses 3 through 6 that the pilgrim here says, God is not only my helper who is with me, daily. But God is also my keeper. If you look at verse 3 with me, I'd like to add a word. Because in the original, it literally is a prayer such that it would be, may he not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. May your foot not be moved and may the one who keeps you Your keeper, may he never go to sleep. In verse 4, there's a different voice. You'll notice that it changes. Behold, Charles Spurgeon says, How delightful to think that no form of unconsciousness ever stills over him, neither the deep slumber nor the little sleep, The word, behold, is set up like a great waymark, landmark signpost. Israel, that is Jacob, fell asleep, but his God was awake. We believe that David would have learned from Jacob that Jacob, dwelling out without even a pillow, with a a rock for his pillow exposed in the elements as he fled Esau in his anger, God watched over him all night. God met him there in his journey. And Jacob would later say about Bethel that that was a place where earth met heaven. That was the stairway, the Jacob's ladder, as it were. But he said, God didn't stop. God met me there to show me that he would... Quote, be the keeper of my life all my days. What's happening in verse 4 is we have another voice. It's like there's an older veteran pilgrim, wiser and experienced, who comes along. And verse 3, the rookie pilgrim, looking at those hills, looking up at God and saying, God, I pray that you don't let me stumble. Oh, don't let me fall off the Christian walk. Don't let me lose the faith. Let me make it to the end. Don't ever sleep. Don't stop holding me. Don't stop. And then another voice comes in. and says, behold, he won't. He won't. Remember Jacob? Jacob the con man? Jacob the scoundrel? God watched over him. God never stopped. Never stopped until he made it home. So the pilgrim has a keeper. If you look at verse 5, I did this exercise this week and it moved me to the point of both tears and confidence. After looking at verse 5, I personalized verse 5, the, the five words, the Lord is your keeper. And I placed emphasis. On each individual word. And at the end, my experience was such that, like David says elsewhere, I believed that with my God I could scale a wall. If I allowed myself to believe verse 5, then I I am fearless. The Lord is my keeper. 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 He doesn't sleep on watch. He guards the city and he guards the populace of that city. He doesn't even nod. They tell the story in 1863 of a Captain D who was sailing from New York to Liverpool. And his eight-year-old daughter was on board. In the night, as they were sailing, a squall came upon the ship such that it knocked the ship onto its side and the shi- all the contents and all the passengers in their berth were thrown out of their bed. And as they woke up, they immediately began to grab their clothes and grab their belongings, thinking that they would surely either go overboard or they would go under. Captain D's eight-year-old daughter was one who woke up, and she asked them what is happening. they said, the ship is in a great, great storm. And she asked this question. Is my father the captain on deck? And they said, yes. And with that, she said nothing else but got her pillow and went back to sleep. If you believe the Lord is your keeper, do you know what that means? You can rest. Really. It's one of the promises to you as a son or daughter of God. It's not on your back anymore. You don't have to be relying upon it. You can rest. It's like the old boy said All right, so we got to keep watch tonight. You're going to stay watch? Yep, I got watch. Well, then if you got watch, I can go to sleep. If God has watch, I can rest. I can sleep. I can really rest, deep rest. We need that as pilgrims. We need that all the way home. We, we have this vague doubt and this creeping unbelief that comes in to say, I think God is either indifferent or He's asleep at the switch in my life. The journey right now is really, really hard. My spiritual walk is really, really challenged and tempted. Or non-existence. The issues I, fly, I face, they're so I'm so anxious all the time. And I don't I pray and I pray and I don't see God answering in the immediate. I need change, and change seems so far off. It's just more conflict. I'm so anxious all the time. It's as if God is asleep. The Lord is your keeper. Behold. Behold, the Lord doesn't sleep. The Lord doesn't even sleep just a little bit. He doesn't even nod. He doesn't even slumber. He doesn't even catch 20 winks. You know why? Because your enemy doesn't. So He wants. He guards your heart, your soul, your mind, your life. He watches over it all the time. He's watching you. And that shouldn't come as a thing that makes you nervous or anxious. He knows you. He watches over you not judgmentally. He watches over you because He loves you. He watches over you like a mother watches over a sick child. But even mothers will get sleepy and catch 20 winks. But not your father. No, no. Not your father. He never sleeps. Finally, this morning... Recognize, he says, that in verse 7, that the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Derek Kidner says about this verse that to be kept from all evil does not imply a cushioned life, but a well-armed one, which, like the sheep in Psalm 23, verse 4, expects the dark valley, but can face it. How does that sheep in Psalm 23 face with confidence and rest and peace the journey through the dark valley? He faces it with a shepherd. The pilgrim, me, you, in our spiritual journey, we have a shepherd. Jesus Christ says in John 10, verses 27 through 30, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. Do you hear his voice? I so need to hear his voice every day. That's what everyday worship is about. Oh, that we would take Psalm 121, and like some do, we would sing or recite or pray these short eight verses every day. And they will began to give us an added confidence and an ability to rest, no longer relying upon myself, but relying upon this helper, relying upon this keeper and this shepherd. Do you hear his voice? I give them eternal life. It's yours. He's not going to snatch it away at the end. He's not going to drop you at the end. This is called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It's one of the top doctrines in Calvinism that came out of the Reformation. And it doesn't mean that I am going to be in my, on my own ability, strong enough as a Christian man that I can make it, because I assure you, I can't. It means that He's made a promise that He will keep. Even if I violate my promise and I drift, He will bring me in eternal life because he has promised that when I received Christ and his life and his death applied to me I give them eternal life, it's bedrock it's assured and they will never perish no one will snatch them out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand Do you see this? He's saying, I'm the good shepherd. And the sheep, my sheep, I give them life. And they are in my hand. And I'm ever vigilant. Nobody's able to take them out of my hand. And you know what? They're also in the Father's hand. Because they're in my hand, the Father, God, has his hand on me as well. So we have a shepherd. And what this means is it's not simply for our life now from earth to heaven, but it's forever. I came across this verse yesterday and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to end with it. And it's out of Revelation chapter 7. In verse 15... 17, there's a great assembly around the throne of God. And on that throne is a lamb, is Jesus. And they began to sing. They sing a psalm. They sing a song. They sing the gospel. Listen to what they sing. They are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. That promise was made for here, the pilgrim on life, in this life. And now he's saying. For all eternity, in the new heaven and the new earth, the sun will never strike you because I didn't stop and fulfill my promise when you simply made it to heaven. My presence, my shelter, my being your helper, your keeper, and your shepherd will never end. It won't end at journey's end. Because you'll always, always, Be helped by me, kept by me, and shepherded by me. Verse 17, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Hear the gospel. There is a lamb on the throne. A lamb. Not a great knight who's been victorious in battle, but a lamb that was slain for the forgiveness of our sins. And that is ever before God as a, as a, as a pledge, as a, a documented event, that we are completely forgiven. And that lamb on the throne, he's your shepherd. It's a paradox. The lamb is also a shepherd. Isn't that the shepherd we want? One who loved us so much that He would die for us to not only be forgiven, but to be restored and strengthened and healed and transformed into the very sons and daughters that He's shepherding us to be. This table this table reflects good news. And as we come to the table, I pray that you're able to approach the bread And approach the cup and to say with this pilgrim, God is my helper. I repent of self-reliance. God is my keeper. I repent of the anxiety and the, the, the disturbance and the worry of not being able to rest because He never rests. God is my, Jesus is my shepherd. And I repent of trying to to live as if I did not have a shepherd. I repent and I come to this saying, oh, I need a shepherd. I need thee every hour. Watch over me, help me, keep me, guide me now and forevermore. And this table broadcast His great love for us and His faithfulness to keep these promises. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that You set aside this bread and this cup of wine for a mysterious and holy purpose. That this bread and this cup will strengthen me in my journey. It will will strengthen me because it's a fresh intake of the very person of Jesus Christ and His presence with me now and forever. So Lord, I want to consume Christ at this table. I want more of Him. I want more mindfulness of Him being with me and that I am not alone. Father, we come as pilgrims in our journey to this table for refreshment and strengthening and encouragement. Give us that, we pray, even by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.